one of the more difficult passages in the Bible this morning. Um, I'll do my best to deal with what Matthew says, Matthew 24. We are talking about what's usually thought of as the end times. That is the normal understanding or the common understanding of many of these sayings here. My understanding of Matthew 24 is different than many. My understanding of Matthew 24 is that most of it was fulfilled in the first century, that it's talking about history specific to Matthew, Matthew's day and time. I'm going to try to show you some of that today. So I represent, I guess, probably a different interpretation than many of you are used to. And I would just encourage you that when it comes to studying the end times, uh, be okay with that. Um, that I, I think it's a good principle to practice that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And that's what we want to emphasize uh, when we lead the church and teach the Bible and live the Christian life. And, and my goodness, the main things are clear and they're plain. Jesus will return. Jesus will return in power and set up his eternal kingdom. And, and essentially in Jesus' return, he's coming to judge unbelief and he's coming to save his people. He's coming in judgment and he's coming in salvation. He's going to establish and create a new heavens and a new earth wherein there will be an eternal existence for all the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ forever without any sin. Those are the things the Bible speaks clearly to. However, there are many things in the Bible, like the text this morning, that Christians throughout the history of the church have understood differently. This is just one of those hard passages in the Bible. And so it, it should call us to study more, to think more, to talk more. And, and to recognize Christians have had different ideas about this really throughout history. Let me read it. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet of Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now no and never will be. One of the challenging things in trying to study the end times is that this is an issue that is spoken of throughout the Bible. That essentially all through the Bible there are references to the end. The end. And when you're trying to harmonize that, the difficulty comes. It's challenging to try to take all of these passages together. I'm going to show you some of that today when we look at Daniel this morning. It's just very challenging to try to harmonize some of what the Bible says about these issues. Another thing that makes this study difficult, which I personally believe a lot of people overlook. I think a lot of people approach the issues of the end times and, and I think they're looking at it in too simplistic of a way. And let me, let me explain why. Because the books of Daniel, or at least the second half of Daniel, and the book of Revelation, just read them, and you will find that they are, by nature, very different from the rest of the Bible. Just read the book of Revelation. It is not like reading the book of Romans or the book of John. You read the second half of Daniel, it's not like any other book in the New Test Old Testament. It is fundamentally different, and the reason why is, 
It is a different genre. My friends, it's today in our time, we have different genres that we write in. Like, like for instance, if you're, dating a, if you're a guy and you're dating a girl, you're not going to go out on a date and read her stereo instructions, right? Baby, check out these instructions to this stereo. You'd never do that. If you really love this girl, you're probably going to write her a love poem that's going to sound a lot different than stereo instructions. It's a totally different genre. You would not read a love letter the same way you would read stereo instructions. The book of Revelation reads like pictures, doesn't it? Well, that's because that's what it is. It's visions that John saw, and he's trying to explain or write down what he saw. You see the same thing in the second half of Daniel. This makes it very challenging to try to study and understand and then harmonize all of these things. So what people have done throughout the history of the church is they've come up with systems. That's the best word I can come up with. They've come up with systems to try to make all these things work out together. And the reality is, in my view, every system has major problems and strengths. That's why when I approach these issues, like the study of the end times, and particularly like things like the timing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it requires humility. And quite frankly, I'm not strongly dogmatic on some of these matters. Like this morning, we're going to talk about and look at what the Bible says about the abomination of desolation. I'm not strongly dogmatic on that issue like I am strongly dogmatic on the Bible is the word of God or Jesus is the way of salvation. The reason is because I just don't think it's as clearly understood. And I think that the, 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 the whole swath of church history would confirm that. What we have in Matthew is we have a question, and then we have answers from Jesus. And this is the longest answer Jesus gives to any question. So this is very, very important. Let me go back and remind you of the context. Always important to do that. Look back to chapter 24 and verse 1, Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple... But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. Verse 3, and he sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately saying, here's the question. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Now, one of the things Christians differ on in looking at this passage is when is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and when is he talking about future events? And in fact, some good Christians, and I'll explain why next time probably, next week, some Christians see the whole thing as historic. That none of this is talking about the future return of Christ. Let's talk now about the abomination of desolation. Jesus is talking about when this will take place. I interpret that as understanding when is the destruction of the temple going to take place, verse 15. And then when is the sign of your coming is a different question. Verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So if we're going to understand the abomination of desolation, you've got to go back to Daniel and look at what he says about it. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 8. Now, like I said, Daniel is this different genre of literature. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel is a prophet in your Old Testament. 
He's a prophet that God spoke to about the coming of the end. And we're going to start in Daniel chapter 8. Now, for this first one, if we can get R2-D2 to calm down back there. Bit of beeping, that's all right. If, this first one we're going to look at, I'm going to read the whole passage. I'm not going to do that for every one. But what I, what I want you to notice when I read Daniel 1, 8, 1 through 13 is, this is unusual. This is not, this is not like reading Deuteronomy. Okay, I want, you're going to see that. He is speaking essentially symbolically and using symbols. It's what makes this so difficult. I just want you, uh, 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 let me just explain to you my position. I find this incredibly difficult. I find the second half of Daniel to be the most difficult part of the Old Testament to understand. I think you'll see why when I read it. Daniel 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised up my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came up from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was wrong, the great horn was broken. I'm sorry, when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overgrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and hosts to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, I'm sure in reading that, you've got all that figured out, don't you? I mean, wasn't that absolutely clear as a bell? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, some of that could and certainly is because of my lack of study, absolutely. This is challenging, difficult stuff. But did you notice the reference to the abomination of desolation? It comes in the... In 
Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, there it is, and the giving over of the sanctuary to the host to be trampled underfoot. Now keep that trampled underfoot in the back of your mind. I'm going to show you a New Testament reference to that in just a minute. Go to chapter 9 of Daniel. The abomination of a desolation can be found in Daniel, I believe, four times. Look at chapter 9, Daniel 9, 24. We're looking at these because this is what Jesus refers back to. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now you got that one, didn't you? I mean... Clear as a bell, right? This is one of my problems with people who are dogmatic about texts like this. I'm sorry, I just have to be honest with you. This is where I was telling you every system of trying to understand these things I think is flawed. And the things that people read into this text I think are quite a stretch. Just in my own study of the Bible. And here is a question I would ask or encourage you to ask. There are people that come to this text and make really strong statements about it. I would just ask this, and and for your consideration. Are your views and your interpretation of this text based on some book you read, or is it based on what the Bible itself says? And keep in mind, I'm a person who's like changed views of the end times three or four times. (laughs) Okay, And I'm subject to change again. I'm trying to understand the Bible. What I'm saying is, I read this... And unlike reading Deuteronomy, this is, this is unclear at best, in my view. Look at Daniel 11.31. Daniel 11.31. I'm not going to take time to, to point out all the problems I have in all the views or to really put forward. I'm going to tell you what I think the Bible means, what I think Matthew means, and then you need to pray and study and think about it for yourself. I think the interpretations of Daniel are incredibly flawed when they come to these texts. That's my, that's my opinion. Daniel 11.31. Daniel 11.31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. 
Again, if you read the context of chapter 11, I think it's very difficult. However, what you, there's one similarity in all three of these texts so far. You've had this abomination that makes desolate, and you've had a removal of sacrifices. That, again, in just studying the Bible, that's one thing consistent that I can see in all these verses. Just an observation that will become more than that when we get back to our Matthew text. Look at Daniel 12. Daniel 12 beginning in verse 8. Here to me is a very encouraging verse. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. So Daniel the prophet has received these visions. Just read Daniel 8 through 12. And Daniel's conclusion at the end here is I heard and I do not understand. That's interesting. By the way, no explanation forthcoming. Look what, the, look what the, the angel here tells him. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall, I, what shall be done? What, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. The interpretations of those numbers are incredibly varied and bizarre. My view, just to share with you, I take the numbers in Daniel and Revelation to be symbolic like I take the rest of that part of the literature to be symbolic. Back to Matthew 24. So when you see, now again, Jesus is talking about when are these, when's this going to take place? The destruction of the temple and then the sign of your coming. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. The reader of what? The reader of Daniel. I don't think it makes sense for Jesus to say, let the reader understand to the readers of Matthew. He, it makes sense for him to say, let the reader understand, because he's just referenced Daniel. Let the reader understand what? Verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I believe, I think, that it's best, and again, I'm, subject, I'm, I'm okay to change this view, but based on Matthew 24, all right, I'm going to try to... Study and understand Matthew 24 and what Jesus says here, first and foremost. That's, that's my task. I think it's best to understand what Jesus says here about the abomination of desolation to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem that he's been talking about. Now let me give you four reasons why I take that position. Number one, reading in context is kind of the answer to all of them. But go back to Matthew 23 and verse 38. Again, Jesus has been repudiating the Pharisees. He's been making very clear judgment is coming upon the Pharisees. And look what he says. Here's essentially the last word of judgment upon Jerusalem and upon its leaders because they've rejected the Christ. Matthew 23, after this long series of woes, Jesus says in Matthew 23 and 38, See, your house is left to you. What is the word? Desolate. This is a clue to me 
When I see this word again, and Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, I believe Jesus is talking about the same things. I think it's the judgment of God on Jerusalem because they rejected the Christ. That's the first reason I think he's talking here about the judgment upon Jerusalem because of the word desolate. He's just said, your house is left to you desolate. The, king, the, the temple's coming down, and when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then secondly, who is Jesus talking to when he says, when you see? He's talking to the people who asked him the question. If you will look at Matthew 24 and, and just look at the pronouns, I think it's a convincing case that he is talking to the people standing in front of him about what they will see. It fits their question. Number three, again, read the next verses. Read the next verses. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That sounds a lot like the destruction of Jerusalem. People say, well, it could be future. Maybe it is. Possibly. Verse 17. Let those who are on the housetop not go down and take what is in the house. Let not the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. I think this is just Jesus simply warning them about the destruction that is coming, and it's coming and you better get out. Verse 19. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing babies, or infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. Again, it's going to be harder for a woman with a baby or harder for a woman who's pregnant if she's trying to flee a city that is under siege. Not only that, now here's a big clue that it is talking about their current context. Pray that it not be on the Sabbath. What? Why throw that in there? Because on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem at that day and time, the gates were closed, which would make it very difficult to flee a city. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. We'll get to that one in a minute. Now, this sounds to me like a localized disaster. Eusebius, who is the first historian of the church, that's his distinction, the first guy to write about the history of Christianity, noted that when the Romans besieged Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Christians fled or at least many of them did. So here you have an, a very old source, the first historian in the church, Eusebius. One of the things he records is that when the Romans came to destroy Jerusalem, I think they came in 66 or 60 AD, the city was finally destroyed in 70 AD, the Christians fled. This is common in the ancient world. When a, when a superior power would besiege your city, they would let people go. Some of the people. The people who didn't want to fight, they would let them come out and join them. Or sometimes they would let them go. Now, fourthly, this, is, this I think is the strongest piece of evidence that what Matthew is talking about when he says abomination of desolation is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe that is Luke's interpretation. Let me show you what I mean. So, so I've taught through the gospel of Luke, and I'm, you know, this abomination of desolation thing is very difficult. I was like, why haven't I tangled with this before? Because Luke doesn't mention it. So you've got four different gospels, all of which give you essentially four different snapshots of, of Jesus and his teaching. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you know, are all very similar. 
I believe it's Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 all have this teaching. However, if you line them up side by side, when you get to Luke's section on the abomination of desolation, look at what he says. This is Luke 21, beginning in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke gives you two clues that he's interpreting the abomination of desolation as the destruction of Jerusalem. Because, again, instead of using the language Matthew and Mark uses, he says, when you, when you again, pronoun you, see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then did you notice what he said at the very end, something Matthew and Mark do not include? It will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Does that sound familiar? Yes, because it's in Daniel 8. One of the things Daniel 8 says the abomination of desolation will do is that it will trample underfoot the, the holy city. I think you get Luke's interpretation here of this idea of the abomination of desolation. Now, why is that important? Matthew is a Jew, a Levite, and his gospel contains many, many references to the Old Testament. Luke is a Gentile writing, assumedly, to primarily a Gentile audience. That's why Luke does not include this Daniel language here, but rather interprets it. And he interprets it as Jerusalem. That's the best I can do with that. Now let's move on. Well, we'll save the next verse for next time. Um, I've got two pieces of homework for you then, okay? And then we're going to give you some encouragement. Two pieces of homework. If you take this historically, what in the world do you do with verse 21? For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. By the way, that verse gives strength to the view that this is all future. Like I said, every system and interpretation has its issues and problems. Secondly, here's another piece of homework, verse 29, which Lord willing will cover next week. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So you're saying that verse is, is, has been fulfilled in history? Yes, I think so. Now why would I think that? Well, that's your homework. You know what you should do? You should take your Bible and look up every reference of this stuff like the sun turning to blood and the stars falling from the sky. Take your Bible and, and do that work in the Old Testament and the New Testament and you see, the, see what you find. Now, the last point. Actually, the last points, okay? So try to wake up. When we study passages like this, see, the, one of the things, if you read stuff on like this and you read books about this, in my view, it's, it's too academic. And, 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 and the details of Scripture obviously are important, and you probably know I'm all for academics, but you read this stuff and you get so lost in the academics of it, you miss the glory of Jesus Christ. 
So here's the final point, is to recognize the glory of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you see in this text, really regardless of how you interpret it, is that the one who predicted the future, in this case the destruction of the temple, that came about. That what Jesus said would happen, did happen. That what Jesus predicted, the final climactic judgment upon these Jews in Jerusalem that rejected him, the Son of God, fierce judgment is going to come and they are going to be wiped out. This temple, not one stone is going to remain upon another. That happened in 70 AD. And here before the fact, you find the greatest teacher who is Lord and God telling you that. All the quibbling and squabbling about the dates and the charts and the timelines can distract you from the glory of Jesus Christ who is Lord and God and who is saying things about the future before they happen and guess what they do happen when you read the book of Revelation you should not miss its main point that Jesus is the victor and that he is victorious and that he is Lord and we should stand in awe of the glory of Jesus Christ in my view, this is one of the dangers of becoming passionate about some system that you can lose your passion for really what the system is supposed to point to, Jesus Christ who is Lord. When you read about the unfolding judgment of God, you should tremble in fear. And that trembling in fear should cause you to, to go to Jesus Christ in faith. That's, that's one of the main points when the Bible talks about the end times. You know, Jesus is so good to prepare his people and he is so good to protect his people. And that's what, really, next week, if we get that far, is all about. That Jesus cares enough about us and about his followers in that day to give them the warning. When you see the, when you see the armies surround Jerusalem, you better get out of town because they're going to destroy the place. Temple included. He cares enough to prepare and to protect his people. And the Christians in 70 AD or before 70 AD fled when the Romans showed up or at least some of them did. You know what this should do? It should strengthen your faith. By the way, if you don't have faith, if you're, here, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, this may be your first introduction to Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks clearly and definitively about a coming judgment of God. Jesus is the one who rightly teaches about God. That's why you should believe in him. Jesus came and he died on the cross for sinners. All, as you get older, you live your life, you're going to recognize your sin is your biggest problem and you can do nothing about it. And this is why there's such good news that God took the initiative and did do something about it. Something amazing in sacrificing his own beloved son so that you could be forgiven of your sins eternally. It's the good news of the gospel. It's why you should trust in Jesus. But for us Christians... We should read a passage like this and it should refresh our faith. I think, it's, I think the, the norm of the Christian life is there will be times of doubt. A text like this where you see Jesus say very specific things about a very specific event that did come to pass should give you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It should refresh your faith as a Christian. That you're following the one who is like no other. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and he proved it over and over again. And here's yet just another evidence of that. Not only did he heal any sickness, not only did he have authority over demons, but he accurately predicts the future so that his 
followers would be warned and prepared. That should refresh your hope in him. Now, in conclusion, kind of a long conclusion, I view one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor is to prepare you for what I believe is the most important event in your life. I think the most important event in your life is standing in judgment before the Holy God. You'll stand, every single person will stand in judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ who's been given all authority and power. I think it's part, a, a huge part of my responsibility to prepare you for that day. Let's look at John chapter 3. I want to show you this in the Bible. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 35. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3, 18 says that they are condemned already. Those who do not believe in the Son are condemned already, and the wrath of God rests upon them. Furthermore, look at John 5, 19. John 5. I'm going to start at verse 22. John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So the, the, the critical question here is, in preparing you to stand before the judge, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting him to bring you to God? Are you obeying him? Because look at what's going to happen. 2 Thessalonians 1. Look at what's going to happen. So friends, many of us in this room, we love our kids, we care about our kids. We take steps, big steps, use a lot of our life and our effort and our energy to prepare our kids for the future. Make sure you're preparing your kids for the most important thing in the future that they will ever face. And that is the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Here's what's going to happen. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those who receive the vengeance of God through the Lord Jesus Christ are described in two ways. They do not know God, and it's the same group that do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, friends, the, the gospel is more than just a message. It's a command. And the command is to believe. To trust in Jesus. To believe in him. To repent of your sin. Verse 10 I'm sorry, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and for the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. One of the things the scripture says is that in taking the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is something we do on earth as the church when we gather together and part of it is a message to one another and to the world that Jesus has died on the cross for sins. We verbally proclaim the gospel. The taking of the Lord's Supper is a tangible and physical reminder of the gospel. 
Let me ask our deacons to come forward. They're so good to prepare this and to help and to work. Praise God for you guys. They're going to distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper. The reason why we take the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not just you know, tradition. No, it's because Jesus did it with his disciples. And then it's practiced in the church in the New Testament. And the command is, as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me, that we're called to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture warns us not to take it in an unworthy manner. And to guard against taking it in an unworthy manner, we are to examine ourselves. Are you repentant of your sins? This is where some of us dogmatic people need to examine ourselves or some of whatever your issues are. <laughs> examine yourself and repent before God. And when you receive the bread and the cup, you remember the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to call our attention to him physically.